episode 102. What does it mean to disrupt healthcare? Today, I speak with Anand Iyer from WellDoc. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Today, Anand Iyer and I dissect disruption. That's a tongue twister. <laughs> but we dissect both the word and the concept. Anand is from WellDoc, the maker of Blue Star, which is the only FDA-approved mobile app. My name is Stacy Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Anand. Oh, it's nice to be here, Stacy. I want to talk about this term disruption. I have to admit, I'm on somewhat of a rampage lately. <laughs> <laughs> Here's one reason why. Let me know what you think about this. It's almost like the new package of Tide laundry detergent is right. going to, it's not going to say new and improved. It's going to say like new and disruptive. <laughs> it's just, it's become a term that's everybody's sticking it on everything. I feel like it's lost any semblance of its original meaning. I think you're right. I think to a certain extent, it's management parlance taken to an extreme. At the same time, you know, the analogy that's going through my head, Stacey, is, you know, when a patient who's flatlined comes into a hospital, what does the doctor, what does the ER doc do? They don't take a blood sample. You know, they don't look at a chart. They take 600 volts to the chest of the patient and go, boom, right? And they shock this patient and try to revive them. And in many cases, I think the way we manage chronic diseases, not just here in the United States, but certainly globally, has almost flatlined. And so the word disruptive is interesting because it's kind of like synonymous or it kind of connotes, if you would, taking that 600 volts to the chest of this thing saying, boom, we got to scare it and wake it up and almost fundamentally realign its atomic structure to actually deliver what it's intended to do, which is not just treat a sick patient, but perhaps even prevent uh, in an earlier sense, uh, and start to look at how we can start disease prevention and keep all those people who are otherwise healthy today, perhaps predisposed to developing chronic diseases, but keep them on the safe side versus going to the dark side. So maybe that word disruptive for me connotes that kind of, we really need that 600 volt approach because it ain't working today, right? Although a counterpoint to that would be, I'm thinking of, there's, you know, Buckminster Fuller, <laughs> he had this great quote, don't fight forces, use them. Ah. And I say this because in the healthcare space, we've got some forces. You look at companies that are probably rightfully tagged as disruptive, Uber, Airbnb, Apple, Warby Parker, maybe. Here's the thing with them. If we put the taxi lobby the hotels and dumb phone manufacturers and the entire eyeglass industry, if we dress them all up in the same uniform and put them on one side of the ring, and then on the other side, we put big pharma, big healthcare. I don't know. I don't know what the over under would be on that fight. <laughs> well, <laughs> but I think big healthcare would take them all. <laughs> well, it's a good perspective. And I think therein lies the use of the word disruptive. And so who is being disrupted and who is the disruptor? And I think in many ways, what's really happening in digital health is, as people call it today, or mobile health, rehealth. In fact, you know what, Stacey, it, in all truth and honesty, tomorrow we're not going to call it digital health. It's just going to be health. And if you don't have a digital component, you're kind of not going to be a player is the honest truth. But that, that notwithstanding, 
the disruption is not happening to the end user. The disruption is happening to the system. And so in many ways, digital health is, is disruptive to the system, but it's not disruptive to the end user. In fact, there was no disruption at all. You think of, you mentioned Uber as an example. Uh, I walk out of a building and, and I want to get to the airport and I, I'm on my cell phone anyway. So it's part of my process to just look at an app and say, okay, here I am, GPS, you already know. I know the name of the driver. I know exactly where I'm going. He or she knows where they're going. And it's highly non-disruptive to the user. It just fits in. And I think we should almost take a lesson of that that says, perhaps the disruptiveness of digital health is that there's no disruption at all. And it's fascinating for us here at WellDoc because one of the things we've done is introduce this brand new class of software as a drug. You know, the American Diabetes Association calls it uh, mobile prescription therapy. You know, fancy words to say software as a drug. But in many ways, doctors prescribe drugs to their patients. Well, maybe they just prescribe an app as well on top of that. And, and it's dispensed by a pharmacy, just like all other drugs. And so I think when you think of disruption, you don't want to disrupt the end user or the consumer of your innovation and value. You actually want to change the process and you want to change the outcomes, which is why I go back to you want to be able to disrupt the outcomes, in our case, health outcomes, and also the cost by which you achieve those. Because otherwise, it's not disruptive. You may actually add cost to get better outcomes. You may add more human capital, nurses, PAs, MAs, things like that. But that's not going to get us to where we need to get to. Our trajectory, let's just say, is not optimal. And we need to figure out how to take a turn in the healthcare industry. I'm flipping through my notebook here because I recently read Robert Watchter's, Dr. Robert Watchter's book called The Digital Doctor. Mm. This is what he said. While someday the computerization of medicine will surely be that long-awaited disruptive innovation, today it's often just plain disruptive. I'd never heard the term unanticipated consequences in my professional career until just a few years ago. So that's what he's saying. So I wonder, what's your view on can we create a seamless and uninterrupted patient experience without disrupting the provider view? I think we have to. And here's why. I'll tell you a funny story. So I was recently myself, I had a sinus infection. And my primary care doc had, you know, treated with antibiotics and it really didn't get any better. And so there might have been something else underlying. So he says, you know, I'm going to send you to an ENT. So I said, okay, great. So I go visit this ENT. I've never met this guy before. And this guy is all electronic. Okay. Everything about him is electronic. So I walk into the room and somebody comes and does all the preliminary measurements, this, that, asks me some questions and said, okay, the doctor will be in to see you soon. So doc comes in doesn't say hi, doesn't shake my hand, sits down in front of his laptop that he opens up and he's got his back towards me. Then he starts asking me all these questions. <laughs> and he says, okay, so how long have you had this for? I'm like, no, 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 no. And after the third question, I kind of looked and I said, you know what? I'm going to text you the response. And he looks at me oddly and I said, well, you're not looking at me. I might as well just text you and, and use technology because that's what you seem to be interested in. And you know, he turned around, he apologized profusely. And I said, this is really odd. And he says, you know what? We've become such slaves to this stuff. And when you think about it, the whole concept of an EMR, they were built, I think, with good intent. No question, we wanted to go electronic because you know how it is when you walk into a doctor's office and it's just this mountains of paper. What do you do with all that data and how do you make sense of it? And you can't when it's in paper format because you lose the value of it. So they know that there's a better way to do it, but EMRs were built by technologists. They weren't built with an informed perspective on what actually happens in a clinical workflow? What actually happens in that 
patient physician encounter. It wasn't built from a, a user experience guys talk about journeys, right? They talk about user experience journeys for consumers. There was no journey here. It was like, oh, look what we can do with technology. So I think we have to, and certain technology can do it, but I think we have to do it in a manner that allows us to not disrupt that workflow. Because I think at the end of the day, you can introduce digital health solutions that fit into clinical workflow, that fit into the patient's life, and that still allow you to extract all that additional value from the data you're collecting. Do you feel like, I mean, obviously we have embarked, we have kicked it off. We're on this digital technology journey. It started, as you mentioned, with the EHRs. Do you feel like we're in the messy middle now and we, we sort of have to have gotten ourselves into this position where there is a chance that a doctor is not even going to bother to look at you because they are so fixated on their computer? <laughs> and, you know, like we have to kind of have those fails in order to succeed. I think partially yes. I think perhaps though there's a bigger issue at hand. And that issue is we are enamored with data. Everybody is enamored with data. You hear it everywhere, like big data, big data and utilities, big data and transportation, big data and public safety and security, now big data and healthcare. And now you add to that mix what's happening at the macro level, which is what? Think of a, uh, a tennis ball that's rolling you know, at a, at a velocity, a slow velocity, maybe a little V1. Uh, and it's called healthcare. And think of a much bigger ball, perhaps a bowling ball, much bigger mass, rolling with a much bigger velocity, big V2, called consumerism. And it's coming at it because patients want to bring in their Fitbit data, their, their jawbone data. They want to bring in the pictures that they took of the meals that they consumed, that they put into the. They're bringing all this data, right? And I think one of the fallacies that we've almost fallen prey to is we think data is the end. And in many ways, it's not the end. It's only a means and only one means to an end. And that is that data has to be converted into information, knowledge, action, and outcomes. And if we don't judiciously take advantage of that transformation, yes, we need the data. There's no question that you need the first domino to, to, to almost fall to create the chain of events. But if we don't actually follow through and convert that data into information, knowledge, and action, then we fall short. And so I think to a certain extent, that's what's happening today. We need to then use that data to help drive, if you would, better engagement or patient behavior modification, perhaps even clinical decision support and drive physician behavior and how they prescribe and, and how they get their patients to the right treatment faster. And that's what we need to do. And that's the conundrum. That's this is, okay, it's not just about the data. We can collect it because we can. But we have to ask ourselves, what should we do with that data? And I think that's the bigger challenge that we have in front of us. So should we be going electronic? Absolutely. But we shouldn't stop at just data collection. We really need to take it through that continuum. Someone said the other day, a physician, and he goes, I'm not going to dumpster dive for information. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask you, you know, and I know this is a... Uh, the, the million dollar question, but I'm going to, or the, how big is the healthcare industry? The $3 trillion question. How do you begin to think about organizing or analyzing that data and turning that noise into relevant signals, you know, a manageable number of relevant signals such that a physician in the three-minute office visit that they have with a patient is not spending their time staring into their laptop but making eye contact with a patient? Boy, that's a really, really good question. I'm glad you asked it. So preface first. 
when you think about data and you think about healthcare data specifically, and you think about today, there's this two by two matrix. If you and I were standing in front of a whiteboard, I'd draw this out for you, but I'll try to draw it here in, in, in kind of free space. So, so play along with me. Mm-hmm. On the x-axis, I have my presence or absence of data. So I have it on the left and I don't have it on the right. And my vertical axis is my analysis intent. So I know what I'm looking for and I don't know what I'm looking for. So play it out. Mm-hmm. Bottom, bottom left quadrant, I have data. I know what I'm looking for. We call that here at WellDoc informative I. It's informative data that answers the question, tell me what happened. So this is math 101, it's graphing 101, it's reporting 101. Hey, show me the percentage of times this happened, that happened, whatnot. And a doctor can take advantage of that at the patient level. Hey, show me how many readings were in range versus out of range. Show me how you're doing on weekdays versus weekends, things like that. Or they can take advantage of it at the population level for their entire patient population. And you can slice and dice by gender, by med regimen, by age, et cetera, all these primary variables. That bottom left quadrant that you're talking about, the informative, you called it? Yep. That is that they have the data and they know exactly what they're doing with it. Exactly. So so in other words, if they ask the question, how are you doing on weekdays? I mean, they know exactly why they're asking that question. Exactly. And so there's a fixed and finite set of questions, but you know, you have the data and you know what you're looking for. And over time, you could ask new questions, but you have the data for it anyway. So that's informative. And once you inform yourself, you now go north in the two by two. You go to the quadrant in the top left that says, okay, I have the data now, but I don't know what I'm looking for. We call that D for discovery. So what can the data tell me about this patient or a cohort of patients at the population level? Can I learn something? So whilst the bottom left-hand quadrant says what happened, the top left-hand quadrant says why did it happen? And this is where you're looking for patterns, whether it's medication patterns or exercise patterns or glucose patterns or blood pressure patterns or whatever. You're looking for a pattern and that pattern now is some knowledge nugget for the provider. Oh, you know what? This is a problem area. Okay, well, let's figure out why. So it starts the dialogue between the patient and the provider to then go deeper on that one. Instead of looking at the entire haystack, you know exactly where to look because the system has already discovered three things of interest that you need to talk to the patient about. Okay, great. Now that you've discovered a pattern of interest, you come southeast into the quadrant framework and you're now at the bottom right that says, Okay, now I know what I'm looking for, but I don't have the data. We call that extrapolative. That's the whole realm of predictive modeling, which answers the question, when will it happen? And when will it happen can be both good events, if it's uh, something that the patient did well, and you want them to repeat it, or it could be a bad event, like hypoglycemia, or you were out of range on your blood pressure or whatever, you forgot your meds. And so you can predict to a certain extent patient behaviors. And then lastly, once you've done that, you go north in the top right-hand quadrant, and we call that A for adapt, you actually then use that knowledge to change the parameters in your app, and you start the process over again. So there's a nice little moniker, it's called IDEA, called IDEA. I would have liked to call Uh it IDPA for predictive, but it doesn't spell anything, so I use the word extrapolative. (laughs) But I think in many ways, therein lies a large, almost illuminative path forward for the doctor that says, you know, I, I almost use the analogy, Stacey, when you look up in the nighttime sky and you know you see a, a star or a planet and it's a point of light, and but then you look at it in Hubble and it's an entire galaxy. Oh my God. Just because you have fidelity in looking through Hubble and in many ways, digital health provides that additional fidelity for a provider, be it a 
a doctor or a nurse or an MA or an educator or whatever to actually see that's what's happening with the patient. Oh, we can solve that. We Let's talk about this or that. And I think that's a really important part about what we do with this data that converts it, if you would, from information to knowledge to action, as we talked about earlier. I like this quadrant that you've created for all the reasons that you mentioned, but also for another one, because it also probably enables a optimizing the use of artificial intelligence. It's pretty evident these days, I mean, based on what I've read anyway, that artificial intelligence or machine learning is much better than humans at identifying patterns. Mm. Whereas it's terrible at knowing what to do after those patterns have been identified. So by understanding what quadrant you're in in any given circumstance, what it also enables is to apply the right kind of tool to do the job. So like if you're in the discovery area there, you, you might want to get figure out how to you know, get your computer more involved. Whereas if you're in some of the other quadrants where by you're trying to take those patterns and, and try to figure out what the best way forward is, then you're not going to use the same process. I think you've hit the nail on the head. And, and that is the same way you said that the artificial intelligence system is very good at determining patterns, but not very good thereafter. It's exactly the opposite for the physician, right? They're not very good at detecting patterns because that's not what the human eye is trained to do. But if they have a pattern in front of them, well, their clinical med school and, and their experience in real life tells them, well, you may want to try therapy A, B, C, and, and, and whatnot and have at it. And so what you're actually looking at is almost a yin-yang, right? In many ways, that piece is missing today. And you know the honest truth, there are some doctors who are just, they're brilliant. They are. And, you know, they went into medicine, some altruistic reason, because they wanted to help humanity and help patients. But even those doctors, what they do isn't scalable. It's not scalable to the whole system. And so they struggle. And if they could spend an hour with each patient to then ask all the right questions and use, you know, their own intellect and, and brain power to figure out these patterns, fantastic. But A, they don't have the time. I think in many ways, just such a logical fit that says, they're not replacing you because when you're sick, you don't want to see your cell phone. You want to see your doctor, right? <laughs> but at the same time, if it can help them inform, this is maybe one or two or three treatment pathways. But, you know, you're the doctor, you're the expert, do what you think is right for your patient. And I think even in our clinical trials, we saw that doctors who relied and who got this smart analysis that we call it from our uh, app were actually more likely clinically and statistically more likely to actually get the patient to the right therapy, whether it was medication therapy or exercise therapy or whatever, but they got them to go faster. So I think that's going back to our discussion on disruptive. Boy, that's disruptive, but in a very positive way. Where does WellDoc fit in the IDEA, informative discovery, adapt, extrapolative slash predictive analytics? Where does it fit in that model? All four, Stacy. So let's use a real example to bring it to life. So a patient enters their glucose values and med values and notes and exercise and food, uh, amongst other many parameters, into Blue Star, the product. And so we can inform, um, you know, what are the number of entries they made at breakfast versus dinner? What are the number of readings that are in range, out of range? As you inform that yourself based on that data, you then go north and say, hmm. There's a pattern here, and the pattern happens to be low sugars or hypoglycemia. And incidentally, 
The reason that's so important from a business standpoint is I think of the $245 billion we spend on diabetes every year here in the United States, some 70 to $80 billion may be unnecessary hospitalizations due to hypoglycemia. So it's of extreme economic importance for us to detect that pattern of hypoglycemia. Okay, so that's discovery. Now I discover a certain pattern that tends to create this hypoglycemic event for a patient. Now I take that and I extrapolate. In fact, we actually have predictive models today that can actually predict after a certain number of days of Blue Star usage, we can predict to the nearest hour on any consecutive thereafter day whether they're going to go hypoglycemic. And so can you imagine me telling my, the system telling mom tomorrow, hey mom, you know, between the hours of, you know, four and five in the afternoon, you make sure you have some glucose tabs or don't be on the treadmill or whatever. And then of course you use that to then adapt the parameters. And so it, it, just that one use case, for us, it's all four. It's not any one or the other. We could certainly offline take all of the data we collect from all of our patients and build more predictive models that could be used to determine all kinds of stuff. And then imagine I was fortunate enough to serve on the president's PMI, the Precision Medicine Initiative. And can you imagine, uh, Stacy, if you add genomic data to this? So a, a patient who's diagnosed with asthma for the first time or diagnosed with diabetes or whatever, can you imagine if they also had their genetic profile? And instead of just putting them on the blanket drug, okay, I'm going to start you on this, this, and this, it may be completely the wrong therapy for that person because maybe it doesn't work in their, in their genetic profile. Can you imagine if you add that kind of specificity? So now you're taking Hubble and putting it on even like you know, Hubble on steroids, right? So that's just a cool, and we're, and by the way, this is not Star Trek, right? We're just very few years away from that happening because you already have companies out there who are mapping the genome for a hundred bucks and, and that data is available. Now we just need to put it all in one place, but we need to make use of that using that idea framework. Why is Blue Star only available by prescription? So it's, it's actually available in two different ways. So when we went earlier on in our history to the FDA, and this is prior to the mobile medical guidance document being made available, the staff that are currently there today under Baku Patel, none of those people existed. We looked at the predicate medical device and accessory rule guidelines, and we looked at the treat, mitigate, diagnose a disease medical device guidelines and said, oh, we must be class two. But when we actually submitted what we received were both RX clearances and an OTC clearance as well. And, you know, small company, limited budget, let's at least do one thing right. And we wanted to start where we were bringing the patient and the provider closer together, because in many ways, that's the heart of healthcare. But we do have the OTC clearance as well. And so you can imagine, it's not the only business model for us. There's actually several business models that we can employ on a go forward basis. And at this time, I would suggest that your customers are integrated delivery networks or providers, you know, like that's who's paying the freight? If it's an IDN all in, or if it's a health insurance plan, or perhaps even a pharmacy benefit pathway, a PBM, uh, because we are, you know, listed with an NDC code. So we're listed in the in the drug databases. So if you have an NDC code, I'm just picturing a patient walking into the pharmacy and <laughs> getting dispensed your your app. How do patients typically get the app once they're prescribed it? Let's make it real. I walk into the doctor's office. The doctor says, yeah, you know, you're, you're doing okay. You're still struggling a little bit on your A1Cs and want to see a little more activity. So I'm going to prescribe this product Blue Star to you. And uh, here's a sample code. And so go ahead, download it from the iTunes or Android market, Google Play, and uh, put in this code because that's what you need. Because right now you could go and do it right now, Stacey, but you need a code. 
And then in the meanwhile, I'm going to send this on the back end uh, so that they can do the benefits investigation and, and all the adjudication, just like I'm sending a prescription to the pharmacy. And of course, you don't have to go physically to the pharmacy because they're not, you're not picking up a bottle of pills or a vial of insulin. You're getting a code which can be sent electronically to you. So it's actually not a physical transaction. It's, a, it's an electronic transaction, but it's a transaction that in many ways fits right within the flow of what a pharmacy does anyway, right? They dispense drugs, well, they dispense a code. You know, they adjudicate, well, they adjudicate. And so for us, I said it earlier, I'll say it again. The disruptiveness of this was that there kind of wasn't any disruption at all. It was seamless for the doctor. They prescribed Lantis and Genuvia, well, they described Bluestar. And here, uh, the patient gets it, well, they get this. In fact, it's easier. They don't have to physically go to the pharmacy, but the outcomes. And you're talking about like a 2.81C reduction, uh, which is unheard of in diabetes world, right? The top 15 drugs today in diabetes average about a 0.8 drop. So you're talking about 2x of that and certainly 4x what the FDA requires is a, a 0.5 drop. And, and that's just, it's almost tectonic in its outcomes and what it achieves. And, and of course, it's using the technology that they already have, that they use, you know, whatever Apple says or Samsung says 60, 70 times a day. Hey, you, people talk about it today, right? You just kind of pick up your cell phone and look at it just because you want to look at it, not because you have to. Right? Obviously, if you're saying you've got a two-point reduction and you're FDA approved, I'm sure you've got some clinical trial that has that very clearly in writing. We're a digital health company that's taken the life sciences approach. I think that was the pathway we chose. And, and let's just be honest. I think part of it was very deliberate, but Part of it, we had no clue is the honest truth. We're like, what does it mean to be a life sciences company as a, as a digital software company? And all we knew is that we needed to do some kind of studies and randomized control studies was the norm for, you know, if you're a Pfizer or a Merck, that's what you do with the new drug. And we're like, yeah, I guess we got to take a page out of their book. And I think we were fortunate in that we were able to show in published peer-reviewed journals, Diabetes, Therapeutics and Technology, and the second one in the Marquee Journal of the American Diabetes Association, Diabetes Care, we were actually able to show that 2.81C reduction published outcomes and then several more studies. And I think for us, that vector of science in our approach and that clinical kind of life sciences approach is part of our DNA. So every time at ADA or AADE, we, we always have you know scientific posters on more research and, and more findings and more ahas, discoveries from the IDEA framework. And I think that's just an important part of our differentiation going forward is the basis of science that we have. Yeah. And, and I have heard over and over again that one of the biggest issues that clinicians have with apps and digital things of all kinds is just there's no evidence. So, Dr. Collins at NIH, the director of NIH, uh, his famous quote, right, is the absence of evidence, the evidence of absence that says if you want to be a player in this industry, you better have the evidence. And I don't know if you saw this article, Stacey, that was in JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, in August of last year, 2015, where the, on their own, unsolicited, they went and wrote an article and they basically lambasted the entire digital health industry. No science, no behavioral this, no evidence, no other, except for one. And they were very kind to point out WellDoc and Bluestar. So it, very humbling is the honest truth to be recognized by them. But I think it is important because at the end of the day, a doctor is not going to prescribe anything that's not safe or not proven for their patient. They just won't do it. And you've seen all the consumer research and you, people have done all these surveys that if you were to use a digital health app as a consumer, are you more likely to use it if it comes from your doctor? And the answer is unequivocally yes. And where can people find out more information about WellDoc and Blue Star should they be interested? 
So the, the website, welldoc.com and uh, bluestardiabetes.com have a plethora of articles, publications, videos, testimonials, etc. And we really have a lot of respect for people in this space who have actually shown the evidence. Because you know, it's what you said, Stacy. this is a $3 trillion problem and no one company is going to solve it on their own. We need more people to take this approach and we embrace those who actually take this approach and say we actually have scientific evidence and patient safety and you're delighting patients and you have to applaud those companies that are taking that same pathway. Thank you so much for being on the program today, Anand. Thanks, Stacey. Great to be with you. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.